I spent the last several weeks uh, kind of tracking some of the revivals happening all over the country and on school campuses um, everywhere. And uh, it's kind of pulled me back in my memory like 31 years um, to right around this time of year. It was actually this time of year, 31 years ago. Um, and in light of this morning's passage, it kind of took me down this really interesting um, journey of memory. Because 31 years ago, I was in college. Um, I had had a really rocky um, few months uh, with my, at the time, girlfriend. Um, she was a year younger than me. And, uh, and when I went to school, we decided to try the long distance thing. And, uh, and this was before texting or FaceTime um, or any of that. Um, I'm about to really date myself. This is when long distance calls cost a fortune. You guys remember long distance calls? Everybody remember long distance calls? Um, yeah, so it was long distance relationships were, if they're hard now, they were like impossible back then. Um, they were uh, they were tough, but I was stubborn, so I decided I was going to try and hang on, make it work. And uh, despite the fact that I, uh, I, you know, I'm an incredibly like needy uh, <laughs> person who requires a great deal of like affirmation and affection in a relationship. Pray for my wife. I'm serious. She, it's I'm a lot. Um, but the relationship was falling apart. The long distance thing wasn't working, and uh, and I wasn't taking it well. It was affecting my mood and my outlook. Everything was a mess, and I was kind of jeopardizing my football scholarship um, And as spring ball was coming up. And uh, basically, I was on a path of destruction. Like, I, I wasn't doing good. i got to adjust something here just a little bit. Got the OFAM on here, and they're blocking my notes. There we go. Um, then one day when I was uh, kind of on my way back to school uh, after a, a, a trip home, I stopped to get gas on Seven Highway outside Lansing, Kansas, and uh, and God like grabbed a hold of my life. I was just pumping gas, and you guys ever just watch Bob Ross? You know the Bob Ross. I, my mom and I used to watch Bob Ross all the time. Love Bob Ross, and uh, and I'm sitting there pumping gas. And I'm looking at, at the the sun is setting over this hill. And there's a little farmhouse on the hill, and I swear it looked just like a Bob Ross painting. It had the happy trees and everything. Like it was a Bob Ross thing and without even thinking about it like it was beautiful and it like and it it grabbed me it hit me with nostalgia had all the feels you know had everything and so uh without even thinking about it I thank God for that I was like God thank you for that I needed that and like that first time I've ever like heard God speak to me like not in my ears much louder than that like in my heart um like and I knew what he was saying and he said that's the first thing you thank me for this entire school year and like my heart just broke. Like I was like, what am I doing? Like what is going on in my world that I've completely abandoned gratitude? Like and and so uh, I start crying. I'm like, like this big football player pumping gas, like weeping outside the gas station. Everybody looking at me like I'm a lunatic. Um, but the crazy thing is in this little this weird little exchange with God, um, uh, my life was totally different after that moment, like. Everything changed. In a single moment, everything was different. I drove back to, to school, immediately called up my girlfriend, broke it off. And like when I hung up the phone, it was like a, the weight of the world came off my shoulders. Like it was so much better. And uh, I swore, actually, I swore off women forever because they're obviously bad for me and bad for everybody. No, I'm kidding. And uh, no, I, Paul was single. I'm going to be single. Like, you know, this is not good for my walk with, with Christ. And that lasted like two weeks. <laughs> Um, I realized that's not going to work for me. That's not how I work. Um, but uh, I knew immediately football wasn't my future and that things uh, were about to change. That's all I knew. Um, and I spent about two weeks with some of the 
easiest 80s Christian music pumping in my head. I like the little foam headphones we used to have. Um, and, uh, and basically, two weeks later, two weeks after that little exchange with God, standing on Seven Highway, I was dating Esther. I was completely consumed in, in this revival that was incredibly similar to what's happening in Asbury and all the other campuses, only without all the media and press recognition. Um, but God was doing crazy things, and it, and it felt like the most natural response um, in the world to me to, to talking to God on the side of the highway. Like, God spoke into my life, and it felt like, of course, everything's going to change. God just spoke into my life. Why wouldn't everything change? Because so it seemed totally normal for me that when God speaks, things change. Um, and I, 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 before that, I had prayed some, read my Bible some. Um, but to that point, so far, my relationship with God felt pretty one-sided. Like it felt like something I did. And all of a sudden, now God is, is also engaged. He spoke, um, and it was a, a weird moment. This is, it wasn't normal for me by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it was basically like a rebuke. It was kind of weird because it wasn't like God like encouraged me. He like kind of rebuked me. Um, but it was like the most hopeful and comforting thing in the world to get that rebuke. It was kind of strange. It was in that single moment. I knew my life was on the wrong road and it was my fault that it was on that road. I knew where everything had gone wrong. But I also knew there was a path that I could take that was better. I also it felt like hope because it, it felt like I didn't have to stay on this um, path. So. Two weeks later, I'm swept up in a revival, and that seemed pretty logical. It seemed pretty normal. And, and please remember, I'm in college, I'm on a football scholarship, majoring in pre-med, can you imagine? Um, dating my high school girlfriend in the spring of 92. So this time of year, 1992, that's where I am. I'm football scholarship, in college, dating my, uh, my, my, uh, the girlfriend, my girlfriend from high school. By August of that same year, August, so not that far, um, I'm married, got, I'm, I'm deeply engaged in Bible college, and I'm expecting my first kid. That fast. So from this time, it was like March 30th, I think, is when I, when I first called my wife. The very first phone call. Um, and nothing felt more natural in the world that, to me. <laughs> Everyone around me, please know, were losing their minds. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was crazy. My poor parents, like... I'm supposed to be taking chemistry and starting another season of football, and instead I'm studying Old Testament and Paul's epistles, making grandbabies. So, um, a little weird for them. I'm pretty sure it was just like a few months ago they decided this, this Jesus thing's probably going to stick. Because um, it was, it was kind of a crazy move. Um, but, uh, but pretty much everyone who knew me, uh, before that moment at the gas station, um, thought that I'd lost my ever-loving mind. I mean, they, to them, it seemed like the craziest thing that ever happened. But God had spoken, and everything changed. So as we dive into this morning's passage, I think, I think you'll see why my mind is lagging 31 years behind all week. Um, I was actually tempted to like dress like I did in 92, and my kids were like, Dad, you pretty much still dress the same. You, you've never, you haven't kept up at all. Like, you're pretty much there. Like, you're, <laughs> there's nothing you're going to be able to do to dress like... So yeah, apparently I haven't kept up with the styles. But, um, but we're in our second week of our Lent series um, that we're titling, I Promise. Uh, and we're tracking the Jesus story kind of from the very beginning into its kind of glorious and triumphant conclusion on Easter. And the road markers that we're using to get there um, to kind of track this journey are these key moments of promise. 
Um, more specifically, the, the covenants in the Old Testament. We call these the, the key covenants of the Old Testament. Um, these moments where God enters into covenant with His people, makes promises, and kind of binds Himself by His own word and His own character um, to fulfill His part of the promise. We talked last week about um, the moment... Um, Everything kind of went astray uh, in the human story. And our first parents chose for themselves how they would live rather than trusting in the wisdom and power of God. Um, and we unpacked the fallout of that moment last week, including God's pronouncement that life was going to look different now. Um, we, we said this last week, uh, things are not the way they're supposed to be any longer. Things are not the way they were created to be. Life is going to be hard. But things are not always going to be that way. God told Adam and Eve that life was going to be tough. Uh, having and raising kids is going to be hard. Mar- the marriage relationship is going to be hard. Making a living is going to be hard. Living on a planet that does not cooperate with you is going to be hard. Life is really hard, but it won't always be that way. That was the hidden promise in that whole thing. As, as God told Adam and Eve that you know he was cursed, well, while, while he was cursing the snake, uh, he, he snuck in that one would come and deal a death blow to the serpent. And his work um, was, the, was kind of a, uh, the saving grace. And we got to peek into the last chapter of the book last week, kind of like you know, reading a murder mystery and just wanting to know who done it. We kind of jumped ahead to the, to the last chapter. And, uh, and we saw uh, the work of, of the seed of the woman come to full fruition where the original purpose for humanity um, is fully realized and where there's no more curse and, uh, and everything that is hard um, that has identified human life for so long um, will finally be removed. And, uh, and, uh, but we don't live on that page yet, right? We live somewhere in the middle of, Reve- of Genesis 3 and Revelation 22. Uh, and we still ache when we wake up in the morning. We still fight flu bugs we can't even see. We still um, aren't comfortable in our own skin. We still fight with each other and we still run from God. Um, but with that picture of Revelation 22 in our future, kind of like a shining light of hope, we move this week to the next stop on the journey, um, our next promise. But before we dive in, I do have to confess we're skipping one. <laughs> we're skipping one of the covenants. Um, and we're doing this for three reasons. Uh, first, we're kind of following the lectionary through Lent. We normally follow the lectionary through Lent, and the lectionary skips it, so we're just kind of skipping it with the lectionary. Um, also, in terms of covenants, it's a pretty simple one, um, and though super important, um, doesn't really take a full sermon to unpack. And I really wanted to spend a week um, in this series talking about what happens when we don't keep our end of a covenant. Um, and so we're going to spend a week in the prophets. We're going to talk about these mysterious characters in the Old Testament these guys whom God sends to his people when they fail to keep their end of the promise, when they fail to keep their end of the covenant, because I think it's really important and profound how God responds when the very people he's in covenant with um, don't hold up their end of the bargain. So just for the sake of making sure we don't like altogether skip it, uh, the, the missing covenant is what we call the Noahic covenant. There's the covenant with Noah. Um, and it reads like this. Yes, I'm... I'm confirming my covenant with you. Never again will flood waters kill all living creatures. Never again will the flood destroy the earth. And God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. Uh, it is a sign of my covenant with you and with the whole earth. When I send the clouds 
uh, over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and, it, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is a sign of the covenant. I am, I am confirming with you uh, and with all living creatures on the earth. So this is the covenant with Noah. Um, and so when we look out um, and look at the total insanity and debauchery of the world, um, it's pretty comforting to look up and see that that uh, that rainbow's there. Like every once in a while, like I'll, I'll say something or do something. My wife will go, I love you. I love you. I love you. I was like, are you telling me or you? Like, it sounds like you're reminding you more than telling me. Like, that's what that's what we should feel when we look at the clouds. Like, because God said, when I see the rainbow, I'll remember. I made a promise. Like, like when we see that rainbow, we're like, Ooh, yes. Hopefully he sees that. Hopefully he's looking at that because because we deserve trouble. Um, but uh, we don't have time to unpack all that. But I do want um, to say, and this is this is kind of a funny little side note. I can't help but saying um, that uh, that as we as we kind of skip over Noah and the flood, um, though though likely cleansing the planet again may not always be a bad idea. And it didn't fix the problem, unfortunately, um, you know, because uh, as humanity obeyed the command to be fruitful and multiply and make more, that's what he told Noah to do. Hey, you go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. As humanity kind of obeyed that command, um, sin and all of its consequences were still the rule of the day. Like it didn't fix the problem. Um, and before long, the entire human race, kind of with the ability to communicate together, decided they would try to do God-level things. They said, we're going to build a tower all the way um, to heaven. And God stepped in and made things difficult by mixing up human languages. And, uh, and just a tiny, tiny little commentary on that story. It seems to me, um, as the Internet and smartphones and, and all the translation tools we have and how much smaller the world's given, the closer we get back to that point where the whole world can communicate together, the more we start to try and do God-level things again. I don't know, like, look at medicine, look at agriculture, look at AI, look at technology and engineering. It's bizarre that the closer we get back to Babel, the, clo- the more ability we get. Um, if anything makes Babel feel real to me, like that was a real moment in history, not just a metaphorical thing that got stuck in the book, but a real moment in history, it's looking at humanity right now. Because the closer we get to being able to talk to the whole planet, the more we try to do God-level things. Like when you read the news, the stuff they're trying to do right now, it's like we're basically going, let's build a tower all the way up to heaven. Let's just take over as gods. Um, so not much has changed in however many years ago Babel was. Um, anyway, that has nothing to do with this morning's message. Um, other than to say God scattered the languages at Babel. Humanity kind of... Um, took this curse of sin everywhere it went. As the people scattered, they took sin with them um, that was passed down from Adam, and it it now covered the globe, um, no matter where you went, you saw it. Into this brokenness, God took the next step toward this kind of mysterious character that was hinted toward um, in uh, Genesis 3, the seed of the woman who who will uh, eventually crush the head of the snake Um and repair the brokenness of sin. So this is the next step in the journey. I'm going to read from Genesis 12. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and 
you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, who treat you with contempt. Um, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left uh, Haran. And he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into the household of Haran. He headed for the land of Canaan. When he arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. Uh, there he set up camp beside the oak of uh, Morah. Uh, at that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. After that, Abram traveled south and set up camp in the hill country with Bethel to the west and all uh, and uh, Ai to the east. Uh, there he built another altar and dedicated to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord. And Abram continued traveling south by stages toward the Negev. Now, I'm not saying my story has anything is anything like Abram's. I'm not saying my little rebuke by God at a gas station is like God telling Abram to get up and leave his father's house. I'm just saying as I read this story this week, kind of for the first time ever in all the times I've read it, I I, I compared the summer of 92 um, to what Noah did. And I was like, I get it. I get it. For the first time ever. I'm like, yeah, when God speaks, everything changes. When God steps into the story, everything, uh, everything gets dramatic. Uh, and this final verse, Abraham was uh, a fairly established nomad now. He's, he's traveling in stages, you know. Uh, and and he's, <laughs> he's 75. Like, so for the first 75 years of his life, he probably lived in a neighborhood. Probably coached Little League. Had a favorite coffee shop. Knew his neighbors. You know, the normal thing. And, uh, and now he's wandering the countryside, um, pulling up camp when the grass gets too thin and, and moving to a new location. And uh, in fact, the, the very next verse um, after the part we read today, he, he has to run to Egypt to escape a famine and, and winds up having to lie about his wife uh, being his sister so they wouldn't kill him and steal her. In fact, think about this. Next time you're looking at the younger generations and, and you say to yourself, you know, it cannot get any worse than this. The world is falling apart. Surely Jesus has to come back soon. Ask yourself, when was the last time you had to lie and say that your spouse was your sibling so that people didn't kill you and steal them? Like, the world's been broken for a very long time. Like, it can, it has actually been worse than this, um, before. But, uh, anyway, I can't imagine at 75 Abraham saw himself going through this kind of a life-changing experience where he leaves the life he had always known and winds up in Egypt basically scrapping for survival. Uh, but I get it. Um, in fact, I, I, I wish I would known this story 31 years ago um, when I was trying to explain to my friends how I was this one life-changing exchange with God could turn my life completely upside down. But Abraham seemingly dives headfirst into this kind of incredible life change because God speaks to him. God, God told it. God spoke to Abraham, and he, and he, and, and everything in his life changed. And God doesn't just speak to him; He makes him some promises that actually impact all of us. It says, "The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation." Article number one, if you want to call it that, of Abraham's covenant, the party of the first part does hereby vow to make the party of the second part a great nation. 
So they enter into this weird little contract, this covenant. And God promises Abraham that he's going to grow this 75-year-old childless man, not only into a nation, but a great nation. He promises I'm going to make you a great nation. Now again, I'm not comparing my story to Abraham's story, but um, years ago, when my older boys were five, six, sometimes, sometime around that, we were reading through the Bible and we, we read this chapter um, to the kids before we went to bed. And after we had put them to bed, Matthew, I think I've only got five or six kids at the time. And Matthew um, gets out of bed and comes out to me. And uh, he comes in my room and he goes, Dad, did God say um, to you that he was going to make of you a great nation? Because the translation we read at the time, that was the language it used. Make of you a great nation. Did God say he was going to make of you a great nation? I said, no, buddy. I, God didn't tell me that. He goes, I think he might surprise you. So... <laughs> So I fully expect in a few generations there to be the, the nation of Heinzelman somewhere. But, um, <laughs> but God actually does promise to make Abraham a nation. And, and this turns um, out to be an absolutely key moment in the Bible narrative simply because the entire Jewish nation comes from this conversation. Um, this conversation leads to that, which means the next 65 books and 38 chapters of the Bible um, all exist because of this moment. This moment, this conversation with Abraham leads to everything we know of as the Bible, everything we know of as the, the biblical narrative. And here's why I think that's really, really important um, and, and, and a really big deal. Uh, because it speaks to the nature of the promises of God. When was the last time you met or saw on TV or heard of uh, an Amalekite? Anybody met an Amalekite? A Hittite? A Moabite? An Edomite? Anyone? Anyone ever met a Canaanite? How about a Jewish person? Like, isn't it weird to think that, that, that this one conversation between God and a 75 year old mind 4,000 years ago, that is, and, and that, and his family's still here. Like, this, that 4,000 years later, this, they're still in Israel, and they're still Jewish people, and they're all over the world. That, that not just a nation, I think maybe Egypt is the only other nation on the planet that was there back then that's still here. Like, that's still a nation. Like, and God tells this 75-year-old childless man, basically, 4,000 years from now, your family will still be here. will still be a nation, and we'll still know who they are. We'll still talk about them in this context. And here's why that's so important. God makes promises that sometimes sound crazy. Sound crazy. In fact, last week I, I read about a day when, um, when we, uh, uh, we, we read last week about the day when we'll no longer be associated with the curse. When our lives will have no more curse. No more shame, no more frustration with others, no more selfishness, no more pain and greed and, sick, greed and sickness, no more death, no more grief. And that sounds crazy. It sounds crazy to, to actually... You know, read this chapter of the Bible and go, yeah, 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 that's pie in the sky stuff that all preachers talk about and blah, blah, blah. Someday we'll go to heaven. Everything will be great. But 4,000 years ago, he told a childless 75-year-old, you're going to have a great nation. And we can see the fruit of that moment today. You can't turn on the TV without seeing the fruit of that moment. That means something. That means the promises of God are, are trustworthy. They're real. Um, so, it's, so it's no crazier... For us to believe that one day God, Jesus is going to come and, and, and repair things and that life 
the curse is going to be removed and life is going to be glorious. Because 4,000 years ago, God said something and it came to pass. Now, um, that's not all that God promises here. It also says this, I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And this is a pretty big deal. Um, the short interpretation is that God's going to be on Abraham's side. I'm going to be on your side. I'm going to be on your team. Um, Thursday night at small group, we talked about kind of the importance of having people and how how you can you can almost track somebody's success based on whether or not they have a good team. Like statistically speaking, the the more support and uh, and the more people you have, um, the your the higher your chance of of success. And God is basically telling Abraham, "I'm going to be your team. <laughs> you cannot have a better team than that. Um, anyone comes at you, they're coming at me." Um, and, and we need to unpack that a little bit because there, there's some uh, really important stuff here. God tells Abraham that he, God, is going to bless him, Abraham, and make him famous. Um, a name that now multiple religions honor 4,000 years later. So I, I, you might be hard-pressed to find a bigger name um, than Abraham. Um, so real fame, like deep fame. But, um, but how many of you know that you know, when God blesses you, it's not actually for you? Because um, he tells Abraham immediately, I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. This is a really important note here. When, when your blessings come from God, you are blessed to be a blessing. Like God doesn't just bless you so you can you know, take it easy and, and chill and, and know that, you know, I've got. In fact, Jesus tells a parable, you know, about a guy who, who is, is raking in the blessings. He's like, I'm going to tear down all my barns and build new barns so that I can fill them up. And, and he's feeling that. God is blessing me for me thing. And Jesus says, you fool, tonight your life's going to be um, uh, judged. And so uh, God never pours out his blessing on us for us. It says God pours into you so that you can pour into others. That's how it works. All the way back to Abraham. I'm blessing you. I'm gonna, like, and you couldn't get a bigger blessing than Abraham you know, that's spoken into Abraham. And, and in that blessing is, this isn't for you. This is so you can be a blessing to others. God encourages you so you can encourage others. There's a, a metaphor in the Old Testament of the storehouse um, where even as it's being filled from the top, it's so that it can pour out from the bottom and feed the widows and the orphans and the, and the Levites and the, and the sojourners. It was never supposed to be like we think of as a storehouse. Like it's just you put it back and you, and you store it. No, it's supposed to be a constant flow as you fill it from the top it's going out from the bottom um oof. and uh and jesus or god kind of playing on this metaphor in malachi is like you know when 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 you fill the storehouse when you give man i'll open up the windows of heaven and, and pour blessing down on you like it's a it's supposed to be we are blessed to be a blessing um and this is this is more than just money this is if you're discouraged man try to go encourage somebody and watch what it does like Pour out encouragement and, and see if your discouragement doesn't doesn't lighten. You know, when when you want to succeed, help others succeed. Like you help others succeed, and you find yourself being successful. Um, the only time in my life I've ever read the Bible, and it seemed bland to me. It's like I just seemed like a book I wasn't really getting much out of. Were the times when I wasn't teaching and sharing. And, and talking to other people about it. Like when I read the Bible just for me, just to like get more, I don't know, spiritually fat and I'm not sharing, it, it dies on me. Like I, I, so it's the only times I've ever been bored with the scriptures when I'm not teaching and when I'm not talking to people about it. I'm little more than a sieve. Like the God pours into me and I just pour it right back out. I love, you know, talking about, um, what God has, has done and is doing, um, sometimes for hours and hours and hours. 
Um, Jess was talking about a small group only going to midnight. I'm like, what are we Baptists? We got to end at midnight? Like, what is, <laughs> we used to have small groups. And my wife has this tendency to just go to bed when she's tired. And we've had small groups used to go until two in the morning. Like, not sustainable, but I fell asleep while I was talking one time. That's how, that's how bad it got. I was, I meant to say, not since Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. What came out of my mouth was not since they made Nintendo 64. And I paused and I was like, did I just say Nintendo 64? And like everybody in the room was like, yeah. I was like, I'm going to bed. I just went to bed. I left everybody in my living room. I didn't even say goodnight. I just went and got in bed. That's when you know you've talked too long. So you guys got it easy. See, you guys got it easy. Ah, uh, where am I? My favorite part of this covenant um, is really cool uh, because kind of like the uh, Adamic covenant that we read last week, the covenant with Adam, um, Last week, you know, God is pretty much bad news. Last week's covenant was pretty much bad news. Life is going to be pretty awful. Everything is going to be really hard. Yet hidden in, in the curse to the snake is this weird little glimmer of hope that shines all the way into 2023 um, on you and me, that Satan will ultimately be defeated by this character who's still unnamed in Genesis 3. But, you know, we get to know that it's Jesus. Um, well, this week... Most of this covenant, though not, you know, nearly as depressing as the Adamic covenant, um, is really about somebody else. It's really not, you know, it's, this is God talking to Abraham. God promises to pour out blessing on, and fame on one man. He promises to make that man's family tree kind of really strong and huge. He promises to be on this man's team. Um, so maybe if you're Jewish, you can feel really good about this. But what does this have to say um, to us? Why, why do we care about the Abrahamic Covenant, And again, there's this one little line hidden in here that's so powerful um, that kind of comes shining through the promise and crashes into our story 4,000 years later. It says this, all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Every family on the earth will be blessed through you. And just like that, open table becomes part of the Abrahamic covenant um, between this moment uh, with God and Abraham. All the families on the earth will be blessed, including your family and my family. Um, so let's uh, let's be practical here, though. Um, despite some pretty kind of awful stretches um, in history, this has been um, profoundly true just in the church alone. Um, the church has had a pretty undeniable um, force for good in the last 2,000 years. Um, the name of Jesus has inspired and given hope um, to billions. Um, the church has kind of prevailed through every form of government and every variety of culture. In fact, the only cultures that have kind of successfully stymied the growth of the church um, are the opulent cultures. It's kind of kind of interesting to think about. The only cultures that have ever where the church has shrunk and 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 lost power are the churches that basically are comfortable. The, the cultures that are comfortable, Com- comfortable churches or cultures have a tendency to stymie the church. In every other culture, the church explodes, grows. Something to think about. Um, but when you uh, when you think about the probability that this one kind of odd duck from 4,000 years ago was willing to uproot his entire family at age 75 and go wandering through the land he didn't own just because God told him to, what do you think the probability that that guy's story, um, this one weird guy's story, would lead to, um, kind of through his descendants, 2.2 billion Christians on the planet right now? anchoring their story in this one weird guy's um, narrative. So this weird, obscure little statement spoken 
from God to Abraham 4,000 years ago that through this one man, every family on the earth would be blessed um, is proving God's faithfulness once again to his promise every single day that we live on planet earth. And let me explain what I mean by that, by that blessing. Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, an 11-year-old boy in Maine, I don't know if you heard this story, stood up and, and, and read to his school board um, pornographic excerpts from an LGBTQ book um, that he checked out from the school library. And when he, when he went to check it out, um, the librarian asked him if he wouldn't rather have the graphic novel version with all the pictures and everything. Um, and, uh, and so the kid goes home, realized what the book was, gave it to his parents. And the chapter that he read to the school board portrayed uh, a very graphic sexual scene between a 17-year-old character and an 18-year-old character, both, both boys, or a 17-year-old boy and an 18-year-old man. Um, and I know I sound like I'm exaggerating. Look it up, though. Look up the article. It's everywhere. Easy to find. The 11-year-old boy's dad made a statement as well as uh, many Christians from the school district. Um, and here's why I bring that up. Um, as the church in America shrinks and struggles um, and weakens, uh, and, and, and as participation and involvement in the church shrinks and, and diminishes, um, the country does not progress. The country does not get better. Um, the, the country doesn't get safer and healthier and more enlightened as the church um, shrinks. The, the world gets gross. The world gets nasty. Um, and, and, and what does this have to do with Abraham? The darkness and debauchery in the world that is being held at bay by praying people, by, by Christian people, by, by people who still try to maintain um, belief in, in Jesus and, and faith in the Scripture, um, in the goodness and grace and holiness of God is unknowable. We can't know the wave of darkness that is being held back. Everywhere the church shrinks, um, there was a, a story that popped up on my thing yesterday. There's a, a school board um, member somewhere in the Pacific Northwest who, who tried to make, change the school board's policy to where they could no longer hire Christian teachers. Um, and so they, they want to make it illegal to hire Christian teachers in the school district. The only weird thing is this, this school board member is wearing little ears on her head and identifies as a furry. So she identifies as a cat, I believe it is. Like, and so she, and, and so, <laughs> She never goes anywhere without her tail and her ears on. And so this furry, I don't know what pronoun you're supposed to use for a furry, but this furry is sitting in a respected, honored position of the school board member trying to pass laws so that no Christian teacher can be hired in their school district. Like when the church struggles, when the church shrinks, the, for lack of a better way to put it, the world goes to hell. And so um, it is unknowable. The line of morality as defined by Scripture that the people of God work hard to hold um, isn't in like an issue or a single platform point saying, you know, this point is a really big deal. You know, that we're holding back the darkness. And that may sound melodramatic, but we can't even fathom the, the wave of evil that we hold back when we do the right thing when we gather together, when we pray, when we sing to Jesus, when, when, we, when we don't want to get up on Sunday morning, but we come to church anyway, we can't know the impact that has on a culture where darkness is just on the other side of the veil. Whether, whether 
Um, you know, we do it here. We do it, you know, in our living rooms. You know, gathering together and being the people of God makes a difference. We resist evil. Um, and evil, you know, as evil as this world may seem sometimes, if you were to pull the people of Jesus out of the story, um, you can't even imagine what would happen. The world doesn't just, you know, become enlightened and progress. Um, so when God tells Abraham in the midst of this, you know, kind of horrendously broken world, because of your family in this world, the whole world will be blessed. Um, everybody. That's not an exaggeration. I don't think it's hyperbolic language, meaning, you know, mostly believing families will be blessed. And, you know, uh, I believe that the descendants of Abraham, those who are both blood descendants and descendants by faith in Jesus, are literally blessing every family in the world simply by holding back the darkness in the world. We can't know. There are people, I believe there are people who want nothing to do with Jesus, who, who would spit on God, you know, enjoy blessings provided by the people of God. Whether, I, I think the whole world, you know, people who, who, who actively resist God are still being blessed by the presence of people, the people of God because of this conversation that God has with Abraham 4,000 years ago. Now, we've been studying the Exodus story with the kids and one of the notes we keep bringing up is how many times God was like, I'm done with these people. Like, I'm done. And Abraham prays. He prays for the people and God's like, okay, fine, I'll cool down. Like, and, and we can't know. And so we've been talking about the kids, like, how powerful you think the prayers of, of a couple people are? Like, I mean, this is God basically when I'm done. You know, I'm assuming it was a sunny day and there was no rainbow because God's like, I'm done. I'm finished. You know, and, and Moses steps in, a praying man steps in and goes, you know, hey, um, maybe we shouldn't do this. You know, and God, and, and he saves the people with his prayers. I believe that if you took the prayer warriors out of our picture today, the world will fall apart. And I think it would be fast. I don't even think you'd, like, you'd have time to figure out what in the heck happened. Um, we don't, just a small example from my own life. Um, 25 years ago, I got a call that my biological grandmother, um, on my biological father's side, was in the hospital. I hadn't seen her since I was two. Um, you know, kind of my dad's been my dad. His mom's been my grandma. Like, so I, I had just, not even really known. But when I was, you know, uh, in my mid-20s, I found out she was in the hospital dying. Somebody told me, so I went to visit her. And uh, I was in Bible college. Well, I was a Bible college graduate at the time, actually. I was, in children's, I was a children's pastor. Um, and I had several kids, and I was passionate about Jesus. Um, and I, I, but I knew nothing about this woman. You know, I'd heard a couple stories, but she's a virtual stranger um, to me. Uh, and when I walk in, she doesn't recognize me, but she recognizes my son, Matthew, who looked a lot like I did the last time she had seen me. So she bursts into tears when she sees Matthew come walking in the room, um, which makes her realize who I am. And uh, so we spent uh, we had a really sweet time. We spent a couple hours um, talking. Um, and in the midst of this uh, conversation, she reaches over on her hospital table and grabs her well-worn, battered, beat up Bible. And, uh, and she opens the front cover. I knew this was going to be tough. Where she has a list of names of people she prays for every single day of her life. And I'm number three on the list. I didn't even know who this woman was. Literally never entered my head until I got this text from somebody that, that your grandma's in the hospital. And she had been praying for me every single morning for my entire life. Anyone who hears me tell stories for long 
eventually asked me, how on earth are you still alive? Probably because of Grandma Frankie, honestly. Probably because of a grandma I don't even know who prayed for me every day. We cannot know the good that our prayers do. We cannot know the evil that our prayers hold back. I honestly believe that because of this moment between God and Abraham, every family on the earth has experienced more blessings than they deserve. Undeniably. But of course, those blessings are superficial, right? Those are the temporary stuff. Much like Abraham's fame and wealth, um, we're really grateful that they're there. We would not want to see the planet without them. Um, But that stuff is temporary. The real blessing, the eternal blessing that comes from this moment between God and Abraham goes much, much deeper. In Galatians 3, Paul says um, about this moment in Abraham's life, uh, through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessings and promises to Abraham. So that we, are belie- we who are believers might receive the promise, Holy Spirit, through faith. Dear brothers and sisters, we are examples, uh, or here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable, irrevocable agreement, that's a covenant, uh, one of the promises we're talking about. So it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice the scripture didn't say his children. We'd have to get into the Hebrew to unpack all this, but just take Paul's word for it. Um, as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says his child. And that, of course, means Christ. Paul, 2,000 years after Abraham, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks back at this moment in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, and says God wasn't really talking about Abraham. I mean, he was. God did everything to Abraham he promised to do, so he is talking to Abraham, but he's actually talking about much, much more. He's talking about Jesus. And because of Jesus, not only does this promise get opened up and offered to everyone, you and me, everyone that's not uh, a direct descendant of, of Abraham through blood, But it also means we have access to the Holy Spirit, the agent and earnest of our eternal salvation when we believe in Jesus. Paul, doing pretty much exactly what we're doing this morning, studying Genesis 12, says this covenant, this irrevocable agreement, as it's translated in the New Living Translation, is fulfilled over and over and over again when someone puts their faith in Jesus. God says, I am on your side. I am, I will, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Every time someone puts their faith in Jesus is an act of the Holy Spirit saying, I will be on your team. In other words, God says, you are mine. You are mine. I have your back. In short, through faith in Jesus, that promise, that, that covenant in Genesis 12 is ours. It's yours. It's mine. It's ours. So how do we respond to this? The Old Testament covenant works a lot like, like snail mail. Um, millennials, snail mail was this thing where you took paper and a pen. Okay, pens were these things that you used. But you had an address, and addresses like work uh, like a bullseye. Like you're like, it's going to be in this state, and not just this state, this city, and not just this city, this zip code. And not just this zip code, but this street. And not just this street, but this numbered house on the street. And not just this numbered house on the street, but this person in the house. Like it, it narrows down 
to an exact name. And every time we move to a new covenant, we learn something new about this Messiah that changes everything. Each step on the way, the address gets narrower and narrower and narrower. We know it's going to be the seed of a woman. We know it's going to be a descendant of Abraham. And we're going to watch this name get small, like more and more toward the center of the bullseye. And, so, and I think this is important. Because this is a very old story. It's been told for a very, very long time. But for people like me who make rash decisions for God and do drastic things like change the whole course of your life in a matter of a couple months or walk away from everything you've known to be a nomad at age 75, we're not crazy. I honestly don't think there's anything more logical than following Jesus. We talked last week about how much Genesis 3 just absolutely nails the human condition. This ancient text tells exactly what it's like to be a human. Likewise, the chance that this weird paragraph from this ancient manuscript from 4,000 years ago would lead seamlessly to 2.2 billion Christians today simply following Jesus and doing good and above all praying The Jesus story is a miracle story to me. It defies debate. Jesus is the most logical thing in the world to give your whole life to. And that's exactly what I invite you to do today. Give your life to Jesus. There's nothing that makes more sense than that. We are invited into this story that, that has been told since Adam and Eve. One absolutely key feature about the Abrahamic story this morning is, is that Abraham obeyed God. At a word from God, Abraham picked up everything and obeyed. God told him to do something and he does it. He believed God. He believed that this was the best thing to do. He trusted God. Later in the Abrahamic story, God tells him to do the unthinkable and Abraham obeys and, and it kind of becomes a theme in his life that, that, that Abraham believes God. When God tells him something, he believes it. In the New Testament, several different authors look back at Genesis 12 that we read this morning and they recognize that Abraham is absolutely the perfect example of what it means to follow Jesus. They recognize that what made, what made Abraham different was his faith. His faith in God. He, put his, he believed God. In fact, his entire relationship with God and, and his place in the story is marked by his faith. And the writers of the New Testament hold up Abraham as, as kind of the vehicle by which we're invited to, hold, to, to know God. So that's the invitation, to believe, to have faith in Jesus, like Abraham, to put, to put your faith fully in Jesus, trusting in his death, his resurrection, and his reign to save us. If you haven't opened yourself up to that, I invite you to do that. Just believe. Believe.